0: Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth on to life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You may be seated.
1: Good Morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning. Enjoyed the service a lot already. Um, those verses that Nate read there, are you ever amazed at Jesus' teaching? I am. Um, and yeah, just going over them again and digging into those words, I'm just amazed at what Jesus really gives us. My title for my message this morning is, We Know About Grace, What About Works? And I want to make a disclaimer there right away. Um, I don't know near everything about grace, i are not even touching the have not even touched ser- uh, the touch grace very strongly, and yet um, we had spent quite a bit of time here as a church talking about grace. Um, Romans, what a wonderful passage to dig into and to learn about the grace of God. Um, I'd preached two sermons here earlier about the grace of God, and my boys at home, or at least one of the boys, said, "Dad, that's all you preach about. Can't you preach about something else now?" Um, I had two or three people come up to me and say, You know, I'd love to hear about um, how grace and works come together. Something we hear, um, something our country or the church of our country has probably twisted in some ways, and I'll talk about that. I was amazed this morning at the um, devotional and then our Sunday school lesson, and I did not plan on having this topic or this message because of our Sunday school lesson or because of a devotional. but here I am, preaching on works, and how does that fit in for us as Christians? I'm just going to open up with the verses that I've probably quoted quite often, and I'm going to go right to verse 10, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, We got that clear? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I hope it's crystal clear to all of us that none of our works will save us. We find our hope in Christ alone by grace alone. Is that crystal clear for us at Weaver Town? I hope it is. And on that premise, without understanding that, I should sit down right now and not talk about works. Because that is so important. In fact, I love the quote um, made by Logan Duncan. He says this, Legalists do not understand the law. Antinomianists, or the free grace gospel, or the cheap grace gospel, don't understand grace. Now, did you hear what I said? A legalist typically understands the law, right? You would think he does. He doesn't. An antinomianist, a cheap grace person, doesn't understand grace, or they wouldn't be... Antinomenus, or they wouldn't be legalists. Um, you see, if a legalist would understand the law, they wouldn't know, they would know that they will never be able to keep the whole law. The law would never save them because they can't follow it completely. They're doomed. They will never be perfect enough to be right with God. You see, they don't understand the law. The Legalist doesn't. And the antinomianists, or the free grace, or the cheap grace, they do, they would know the if they would know the wonderful grace that saves them they would also change. The grace that they believe is not a cheap grace and will not save them because the true grace of God is powerful enough to change us. So this morning I want to talk about works, grace and works. Um, many of us older people and maybe some of us who've come from um, more um, an Amish background have have grown, grown up with legalism being taught quite a bit um, and may wonder, you know, <clears throat> I've heard a lot about our works being a part of our salvation. But today I think most of us here, or I shouldn't say most of us, um, most of American churches are hearing more about the other ditch. And I want to make it real clear. Grace is not in one ditch and works in the other ditch. There's in the center. There's no ditches on grace. But I think sometimes um, we live in, in a country where grace has been spurred or has been cheapened um, in a in a church or in a, a country that has um, people who have cheapened grace. I just want to talk about that a little bit um, today, or I want to get into that. Um, what about works? But what about works? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, who was a Luther, Lutheran. Um, and we know what Martin Luther said about um, works, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Cheap grace is grace without a price, grace without cost. In theology, it appears as a doctrine that can be memorized without being lived, okay? And I know early in my uh, message this morning, I'm going to get into a little bit of theology, and I hope we don't lose, lose you on that, but that's the key there, He says, cheap grace, and that's the grace that you hear too often preach. It's a grace without a price, grace without a cost. Um, It appears that a doctrine that can be memorized without lived. Um, I was listening to Paul Washer's message, and you want to hear an interesting message on on works, Paul Washer, um, and some of what I'm going to speak on here, Paul Washer, I got from his message on works. Um, He says, I believe one of the greatest heresies of modern Christianity is if you say a prayer asking Jesus in your heart, you are a Christian. We are saved when we repent of our sins and ask Christ to give us new life, not just by raising our hands at a preaching service and then claiming to be a Christian. Um, And he says that's one of the greatest heresies in the modern church. Um, You see, when we are saved, God will make a difference in our lives. I am convinced of that. Our works don't save us. But when we are saved, God will make a difference in our lives. Paul says in Romans, and we saw in today's lessons, what a beautiful scripture. I, didn't want to, I should have just sat down and said our, our Sunday school lesson was good enough um, about the teaching of works. But we see what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Does that sound like cheap grace? We become saved, we continue to, if we become saved and continue to live like the world, we are absolutely not saved. We are, the power of God changes us. If you are a genuine, a genuine child of Christ, you will walk in the way of righteousness and have good works. The good works don't come by our will and discipline, but by the power of God. Now, I'm not against will and discipline as a Christian we were talking about that in our Sunday school lesson. Sometimes it takes will and discipline to take care of our members that are going against what Christ wants of us. But that will and discipline comes from Jesus Christ when we're saved. Okay? It's not just a legalistic will and discipline that I'm going to work harder to fight this. It's the power that God gives us to change. Salvation is a supernatural work of God in us. It will have the power to change us, and then we will have good works. Kind of like this. I think some of you may have seen me walk in late this morning, Um, had a reason for that. But if I would tell you that the reason I was late this morning was because I came the back way and I came down 340 and I got a flat tire. And in the flat tire, as I was changing my flat tire, a lug nut went out into the middle of 340 and I quickly ran out to get it and about that time, one of those... um, those big semis that have waste in it come flying down through 100 mile an hour and ran right into me. I hit me head on. Um, truck went on, and I got up, came to church this morning, cleaned myself up a little bit, was late, and that's why I was late. You would say two things, right? You're either a liar or you're mad. I'm going to say this there's something much bigger then a truck hit us when we became a Christian, right? It was the power of God. And if that didn't make a difference in our lives, we got a problem. I don't think it's part of us. The power of God is much bigger than that Mack truck that I would have claimed to hit me. And it should make a difference. If we are not changed after we receive the power of God, there's something wrong. By the way, I did not get hit by a truck this morning. I, my notes were late or my notes were laying on my um Printer, and I had to run home and get it, and that's why I was late. But the power of God will make a difference in our lives. And it should. And if it doesn't, then I'm, we need to question do we really have the power of God? If we have the power of God in our lives, we are going to have fruit and we're going to be changed. Now, I'll make it very clear. That a born-again person is not a perfect person. I've said this often. Verse John 1.8 is very clear that if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But the next verse clearly says if we confess our sins, and he is faithful and justice to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10 again. And again, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. Okay, once again, we're not perfect. But the power of God is going to change us. And Christians are going to live with fruit. If we're not living with fruit, we have a problem, and we should check our lives. and We could we should see are we really saved? The true church has always stressed justification by faith, but they have also stressed good works, not legalism, but good works that will follow every Christian if they are truly saved. I like to spend just a little bit of time. You know, I do this so often to go back in history, see what the um, see what the early church taught. See what the Anabaptists taught about this, and also just see what the Word of God, also just see what see what the Word of God says about this. It's important in our day and age to believe and remember that the old paths, not just what people are saying today, is where a lot of truth is found. We all so often, and I love the verse from Jeremiah 6:16, 6, thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? Walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls in walking along those paths. And I think we need to look back. What are the old paths? What did they preach about works, about justification, about salvation? And then let's look at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? One theologian said this there's two doctrines, these two doctrines, the doctrines of justification or grace, and the doctrines of works. He said, these two doctrines may be the most endangered doctrines in today's modern church. The church would rather experience than understand what salvation truly is about. Feeling and experience have moved aside the central truths of the gospel and have made a very cheap grace. So what did the early church believe? I'm just going to give some quotes here on the early church. The early church was very clear. I want to make this very clear. The early church, if you read any of the early church, salvation by faith alone was very clear in the early church. Justification is very clear in the early church. Grace was preached by many of the early church. But they did talk about works. And listen to a couple of these quotes about works. Justin Martyr, an interesting, um, and you don't need to know these names, but if you like early church history, you'll recognize the name at least. Um, He was in AD 150, and he was talking to a Jewish man. And in his debate or discussion with a Jewish man, we know Jews in general are very legalistic, but in his debate he says this, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And he was talking about that verse and he's explaining it. The scripture is having, re, that scripture is having repented of his sins. We may receive remission from them. God, we may receive remission from them. And don't deceive yourself that even though they may be sinners, but know God, the Lord will not impute to them sin. We have as proof of this. And then he goes back to this Jew and says, we have proof of this in the Old Testament, which was, <clears throat> uh, with about the fall of david which was forgiven when he mourned and wept if even to such a man no forgiveness was granted before repentance and only when he mourned and acted that way how can the impure and utterly abound, abandoned if they weep not mourn not and repent not entertain the hope of the lord will not impute sin unto them now what he's saying there that sounds A little complicated. What Justin is saying, he goes back to the old testament and says David was forgiven for his sins, but only because he wept and mourned and repented. God does forgive us when we do wrong, but that comes with true repentance. Okay? I know that's saying a lot for just a few things. That comes God forgives us when we truly repent. And what we have so often in 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 some of our evangelical circles, we raise our hand, we say we're Christian, but we don't truly repent. That's not true repentance with Justin Morrison. Arjun said this in 18, um, 185 to 254 AD, whoever sins, whoever dies in his sins, even if he professes to believe in Christ, does not truly believe in him, and even that which exists without works to be called faith. Such faith is dead in itself, as we read in the epistle bearing the name of James. And then Polycarp says this, in whom though now you do not see him, you believe, and believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory... And to this joy many desire to enter, knowing that by grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, he who raised Jesus up from the dead will raise us also if we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved and keep ourselves from all unrighteousness. The early church talked much about grace, but they also talked about works. There's just a couple of quotes there. I'm going to keep going. Let's go to the Anabaptists now. And I know some, maybe may be losing some of you when, when we get into this history here, um, but what did the Anabaptists believe? And this is very interesting um, when you look at the Anabaptists. And I know we often like to claim the Anabaptists as our forefathers, and, and I think we can do that fairly, but I don't know that we always live um, like the Anabaptists did. But I just want to just name, say a few things about what they, how they talked about grace and works. During the Reformation, Luther reacted to the Catholic Church and their legalistic views of salvation. And thank God that Luther did that. That was the beginning of the Reformation. And he taught the wonderful doctrines of solo Christianity, um, solo Christianity that we believe in today, solo, uh, by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone and the glory of God alone. But historians often refer, follow with me here, the Anabaptists as being the third Reformation. First one was Luther, and then it was um, Zwingli, and then the Anabaptists. Some people call it the radical reformation. That's because the Anabaptists recognized that any restoration of true Christianity must entail a radical change in life. And you know what? That was taught throughout church history after that. The soon the reformers took on what the Anabaptists believed about changing your lives. Only in the last 50 years in our church here in America did that actually start changing again to believing That we can live like we want. We can do what we want and claim we're saved. It was said by the government council of the towns where the Anabaptists were found that it was easy to spot an Anabaptist. Why? Because they had works. Because they didn't, it said in here, they didn't cuss. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They were good to their neighbors. So when they wanted to capture an Anabaptist, they looked for people that did these things. And they said, oh, these are probably Anabaptists. They should be easy to um, to be able to find that they are Um, the heretics of our day, like they would say, and we'll capture them and put them in prison. I want to remind you again that early Anabaptists were very strong on being saved by faith, alone, through grace. But they also believed the evidence of works. uh, They believed that works are evidence of being saved. Now listen to Menace Simons. Here's Menace Simons refuting the reformers at his time. He's that getting this big old debate or argument, or whatever you want to call it, and because the Reformers were saying the Anabaptists don't believe in grace. Not true. And Simon's protested that the learned ones, or the theologians, or the Reformers, are unjust in their accusation that the Anabaptists believe in salvation by good works. The radical Anabaptists know that those who accept Christ by true faith are in the state of grace by Christ for Christ's sake. So he's saying, you Reformers, you have... Misri- uh, quoted us you have mistreated us by saying we don't believe in the grace of god we believe it's through grace alone but then he goes on to say um god the father grants them jesus christ with all his merits together with his spirits inheritance kingdom glory joy and life and all this we say not by our own merits and works but by the grace through jesus christ But there was a difference in how they believed about good works. The Anabaptists saw Jesus not only as a savior, but as a teacher, teaching them how to live their lives while on the earth. They believed that obedience to his command is required. Therefore, they tried to live as he taught. Thus, they They were separate people following the hard, narrow path to the kingdom of God. So what did the early evangelicals teach about works before cheap gospel was brought into the earth? Are brought into our churches. I'm just reading a couple quotes here about evangelicals, Um, and I know I'm reading, quoting quite a few people. But men that you may know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a lot of you have heard that name. He was killed during um, during World War II um, as a minister of the gospel. He was a Lutheran. I quoted him earlier. He said this. He called attention to the decisive differences between cheap and costly grace. Catch this. And here Bonhoeffer does not mince his words. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. There's another name you probably know, Billy Graham. Listen to what he says, one of the most popular evangelical teachers of our preachers of our time also one of the kindest loving men, he said this. Listen carefully. He believed that a great majority of people who attended Bible-believing churches are lost. He said that he would be happy if even 5% of all the people who had made professions of faith in his campaign are saved. Why did he say this? Because he could see by their works they were not saved. That's disturbing. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Um Do we have works that prove that we are saved? We can see throughout church history, the true church always taught that our fruit and our works tell others and ourselves of our condition with Christ. Whether we are truly saved. They don't save us, but they give evidence of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, if we have no fruit, we have no evidence that we're saved. Now, the bigger question is, what does the Bible say? I just mentioned quite a few people through history, and I hope you stuck with me because here's the more important thing. What does the Bible say about good works? These will, what the Word of God says is, if we believe truth is what's going to stand. Listen to me as I read from different men from the New Testament, not just James, They're called the straw gospel, not important gospel. This is from Paul. This is from Jesus. This is from John. This is from um, Peter. Titus 1, 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disapproved for every good work. Does that sound like works don't matter? He that says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's John. Peter, he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see far off and has forgotten that he is purged from his old sins. Peter, Paul is known for his strong teaching on grace, but listen to Paul. Pursue peace with all men, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is that Clear. Paul spoke so much about grace, but he also put emphasis on holy living, took this very seriously. To him, true Christian salvation is found in the doctrine that produces godliness. Listen to what he says to Timothy. That's very carefully. First Timothy um, 6, I think. He says this. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited, understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. That's for those who are teaching that godliness doesn't matter. The book of James is very clear. I just want to dive into the book of James. If you want to, open your Bibles to James 2. James 2.26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to talk about three different Things, and I think Dave may have preached on this and may have actually mentioned these three things, three kinds of faith, but only one that saves us. It's interesting, in our Sunday school lesson, we have Paul talking about um, being saved by grace alone, and who does he use as an illustration? Does anybody know? Who does he, who do, who do he use? What person in the Bible? Somebody. Eddie? Abraham, right? Who does James use as an illustration saying we need grace, faith, and works? Who's the illustration James uses here? Somebody? Rahab and Abraham also, right? They both use the same illustration to bring two different points. Now, they're not contradicting each other. I want to make that clear. But they bring two different points. One, um, and I'm not going to get into that, but let's look at what James speaks of, three kinds of faith, but only one faith that saves us. In verses 14 to 17, we see a dead faith. Someone claiming to have faith but not having any works is a dead faith. There's no faith, it's nothing there. An intellectual faith, one with a head, which you see in too many of our churches, we know about God. We can talk the words of God. We can say, and you find that not only in our churches, people who claim to be Christians who don't live a Christian life, and yet they claim they're Christians, and they say they know all about God, they can read the scriptures but they have no works to back it up. That's a dead faith. That's one with head knowledge only. An intellectual faith, one that's head knowledge but no actions. And then the next one, in verses 18 to 19, we find another type of faith. Here's a demonic faith. The demons had faith. Satan's demons had faith. You say, did they have faith? Well, what's it say there? Look at it. Yes, Satan's demons had faith. Someone claiming to have faith but not having any works. I'm sorry, a demonic faith, even the demons believed in God and trembled. Their faith went further than their head. Their faith went to where? Their emotions. They trembled about God. So it went further than those who had dead faith. And you have a demonic face Is one who, your faith actually goes to your emotions like the demons. They trembled because of Christ. But did they change? No. We know they didn't change. This faith didn't change the demons and won't change us either. An emotional faith is not good enough. The third faith that we find here is a dynamic faith. In verses 20 to 26, the third faith we see, a faith that changes and affects not only our mind and our heart, but what else? Somebody. We can speak. Our life, our actions, that's a dynamic faith. That's the faith that saves us, It's the faith we need to have if we're going to meet Christ. A faith that will actually change our life. A faith that um, when that big truck or that big God hits us and we become born again, we are changed. So what did... Now, the last thing I want to talk about is what did Jesus say about faith and good works? And here is, I believe, the most important part uh, thing. I shouldn't say. The Bible is all as important, and I'm not going to hold... Um, the gospel above all the rest. But let's look at what Jesus said and turn with me to Matthew 7. We read this powerful message that Nate's been preaching on in the Sermon on the Mount and the last about 15 verses. We're just going to dive into these verses and take a look at what Jesus says about fruit and about good works. Matthew 7, 13 to 29. We see in this passage There are two roads, there are two trees, and there are two builders. Okay? We're going to look at these two roads, the two trees, and the two builders. Contrast. Jesus is showing the contrast. And in American Christianity, too often we think there is somewhere in the middle somewhere is where I want to be. I don't want to be radical here. I don't want to be radical here. There. I just want to be in the middle. Well, Jesus makes it very clear. There is two roads. There are two foundations. There are two fruits, or two trees that bear fruit. That don't bear fruit. One doesn't bear fruit. Um, and let's look at that. We're going to start with the narrow road, verses 13 to 14. Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that which go in there at, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Here we see a clear contrast to those on the broad road and the narrow road. Okay? There's not that middle road, right? Are we clear with this? There's a narrow road and there's a broad road. We learn that at a very young age. But in American Christianity, somehow we believe there's that middle road between them. Or jumping back and forth, for, I don't know what it is. But if we truly are Christians, we will have fruit and we will live on the narrow road. Now, first of all, it says there's that says there's, there's an narrow gate that we enter in, and there's a what's it called? A broad gate, right? Um, the NIV says, entry at the narrow gate and the wide gate." Now, what is the gate? I think we know the gate in the narrow road is what. Jesus Christ, we cannot get in by our own works. There's no way we can get into that gate by ourselves. It's a narrow gate with the cross. We go through that gate through Jesus Christ. And I think we taught that in this church. we preached that in that church, and we believe that. But there is also a narrow road. Now, I know some people would say that's heresy to believe that's not Jesus Christ. I believe that narrow road is a path that we follow. Okay? And we follow that because we're saved. We follow that because we have Jesus Christ. We follow that. It gives us the power to stay on that path. But that path is a narrow path that we live every day as Christians. I love our Sunday school lesson today. We were in our Sunday school lesson. And we were talking about you know the battles we have as Christians. We're not perfect. We know that, right? But we have the power of God to change and to grow and to continue on the narrow path to heaven. I think we have to remember um, that path is a narrow path. Do we believe that there is more to it than just getting into the gate? We also need to live on that narrow path that leads to life or leads to heaven. One that requires us to continue to repent and change, continue sanctification. I need that. I need to stay on that narrow path. I need Jesus to help me stay on that narrow path, and I need to continue to change. I need... If we are in that narrow path, and we are changing, we have what? Fruit that we're talking about, which brings us to the next one. In today's Christianity, we hear about carnal Christians. Now, do you know where the word carnal Christian came from? I realize there's a verse in the Bible that says, it doesn't say carnal Christians talks about carnal. But do you know where that started? About 50 years ago, in a, the, the, in a seminary, there was a man who made up the idea of carnal Christians. It wasn't talked about before that. Now, most of us aren't old enough to remember that. But the word carnal Christian, we use, probably have used it over the pulpit. I may have used it over the pulpit. But it's not scriptural. Carnal Christian is an oxymoron. We are not Christian if we're carnal. I realize we're not perfect. I know some people wouldn't like to hear that. But Christians are ones on the narrow path tr- doing what's right. Not perfect, but by the grace of God doing what's right. Um, the, <clears throat> Paul Watcher said this Jesus indicates that one of the spiritual signs of being a genuine Christian is that we walk in the narrow way. Do you know what the sign for being a genuine Christian in America is? He goes on to say, You prayed a prayer one time. What does Scripture teach? Examine yourself, it says. That's what Paul Washer was saying. Test yourselves in the light of Scripture. See if you're in the path because a Christian will be different. I believe that. We as Christians will be different. And I know that's not easily heard for me sometimes when I'm in the middle of struggles and battles. And, and I know God understands that we are continuing to grow and sanctify. And yet, as Christians, we should be changing. It was good to be in our Sunday school class. It was Five, six men there. And we all were agreeing that we're growing. The Lord's teaching us. He's showing us when we're not good to our wives or when we're selfish or when we're, um, and He's helping us to grow. And it was just, it was neat to be around Christian men who believe the truth that God needs to change us, that we need to keep growing. Jesus said, we're either on the narrow road that leads to life or the broad way that leads to destruction. And I firmly believe the way that leads to destruction is not the way that leads to heaven. We know that. A, fifth, a first grader knows when we're talking about the narrow way and, the, and when we're talking about the broad way and the narrow way, one leads to heaven, the other does not lead to heaven. The other leads to hell. We know that. But so often, it's hard for us to preach that. It's hard for me to stand up here and preach to say, if we are on the broad way, it's going to lead us to destruction. That's not easily taken, but it's Jesus' words, right? And I think we need to hear it. Second thing Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23, is about what? Somebody? Again, good and bad fruit. And there's a contrast there. It's a clear... And again, these scriptures are hard to preach on in today's churches. And it's even hard for me to preach these scriptures here today because they are clear, and yet we don't want to make them clear because... Well, let's keep reading. There's a contrast. There's good fruit, and there's bad fruit. Let's read this passage here. So I'm not just talking, but I can read the Word of God. Even so, every good tree... Sorry. Sorry. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raven wolves. And we know these verses so clearly: ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns and figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. Do I need to read this next part? and cast into the fire. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have done, cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works, and then I will profess unto them, I, will ne- I never knew you, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, I will stop there. Again, it is clear, there's a contrast. Today, many false prophets are prophesying, and they're saying, our fruit don't matter. Jesus said it right there. There are going to be false prophets prophesying it. And we have that. Your profession of faith is no proof that you are born again. According to these verses, many will say, Lord, Lord, professing to be Christians. In fact, most people in our country claim to be Christians. If you go out to your village, or if you go out to almost any village in the United States, and you knock on the door of most of the people, and I think 99% of those people will say, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm planning to go to heaven. They may never go to church. They may live a complete, utter, terrible life. Um, Michael brought up in our Sunday school class, there was, uh, during the Nickel Mine school shooting, um, the shooter said he was a Christian. And A brother said to Michael that he's going to be going to heaven. Now, that is what we have in our country today. A lot of people professing to be Christians because they raised their hand and said, I am a Christian, now I'm going to be a Christian, and now I'm going to heaven. That's not what these verses say. Your profession of faith is no proof that you're born again. In fact, most people in our country claim that. Most of them are not. Jesus says to us here in verse 16, we will know them, Christians. By their fruits. Jesus will make a difference in our lives of those who are saved. They will have fruit and the fruit of the Spirit. We will know them by their fruit. If you are truly saved, Jesus is going to make a difference in your life. Now, your works aren't going to save you, but you will have evidence that you're saved by your fruit. That's what he's saying here. Verse 19 is very sobering. Jesus says, anyone who does not bear good fruit will be cast into the fire. Not that our fruit makes us Christians, we are not saved by our fruit, but our fruit is proof of our salvation. Remember, our profession of faith is not worth anything. Jesus says here, anyone can come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I have done this and this. I've been a member at Weavertown. I've been baptized. I've done many wonderful works. I've gone up in an order call. And he may say, I never knew you um, unless our fruits have, well, he knows our heart. Um, but our fruits will be evidence of that. What does Jesus say we need to do to be accepted by him? In verse 23, we need to do the will of the Father. That is how he will know us. Verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me. Oh, I'm sorry. Therefore, whosoever heareth these things, let say the will of the Father. Um, if we are doing the will of the Father, he will know us. It takes much more than just saying, Lord, Lord, claiming we know we are Christ. Uh, We know Christ or professing in Christ. In America, our Christian profession costs us nothing, and our Christian profession says very little about our commitment to Christ. But in many countries throughout the world, if you would say I am a Christian, you would probably have a cost to pay for that. North Korea: If Christians are discovered, they are not only killed, but they're taken to killed or taken to labor camps. But their families, for four generations share their fate. I don't know what that looks like, but for four generations share the fate of that person who became a Christian. That'd be pretty that's pretty costly. And yet today there's 300,000 Christians in North Korea and the Chris, and the group is growing. In Somalia, Christians are highly valued targets and usually are killed on the spot. What am I saying? A lot of places in the world your profession will cost you something. Um, in America, it costs you little, but is it a true profession? When we Americans claim Christ without doing the will of the Father or without fruit, do we really believe we're saved? Radical Christians, radical Christians, or may I say true Christians, are those who bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are those who have good works and are godly and holy. Again, I want to remind you, we're not talking about works, but evidence that we're saved. Now, let's go to the last one. Verses 24 to 27, we see another contrast, again, between people who build their lives on God's word and those who decide they don't need to listen to the word of God. The foundation, okay? And you say, why are you saying God's word? Well, let's read it. Verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken them unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, following God's word, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The two contrasts are clear, and what each person chose had eternal consequences. One, the house stood. The other, the house was destroyed. We see here again the lost man who hears the word of God but doesn't change him. He knows how a Christian should walk, but he continues to do his own thing. The word of God is not, is not forming or building or sustaining his his life. His foundation is built on, is not built on the word of God, but doing what he wants to do. do doing what others around him are doing. But on the other hand, we have people who are building their lives on the word of God. They're building their marriages, their families, their finances, everything on the word of God. That is the that is the rock that we're standing on, the Word of God. Radical Christians are those who look, act, talk, and even dress, and listen to the music of the Word of God ask, that the Word of God asks them to. That is a radical... One, that's life is evidence of their salvation. I know this isn't very popular in America, but in countries where persecution is taking place, most Christians would have no problem with that thought, that a radical... Christian will be changed and it will affect the way they act and the things they do. Is this us here at Weavertown? Are we radical Christians? Are we listening to the word of God? Is our foundation the word of God? Are we on the narrow road? Are we bearing fruit? Is this Christians who not only enter the narrow gate but walk in the narrow gate? Why would you do this again? We do this because something bigger has hit us and changed us. Something bigger has hit us and changed us and affected the way we live. And that's salvation. That's God um, and his work of salvation in our lives. That's why we walk in the narrow way. That's why we have fruit. That's why we have a foundation, on the, put our foundation on the word of God. I'd like to end with the last two verses here. And this is interesting. And it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I love the way this this ends. People were amazed at what Jesus just said. Now I am. I read those verses. I've heard them many times. I study them again, and I'm amazed that God can actually change me. You see, Jesus' teaching was... His teaching had meaning and authority. The crowd was amazed at what he said in these words. And they should still amaze us today. We were <clears throat> They were not like the scribes or the teachers of the law. Okay, The scribes were the teachers of the law. You see, Jesus was not legalistic, but authoritative. What he said was true. It wasn't just said, so we can try real hard to do what's right. But because of the power of God, we can be changed. It was authoritative. This morning, if you say what you heard or you, you liked or you didn't like what John said, that's okay. Because my words don't have authority. Not like the words of God. They are only my words. But if you're saying that, the, that about the words of Jesus, that his words have no authority, beware. I also, I also hope everything I said was from the word of God can be followed and heard because Jesus' words are amazing and authoritative and will change our lives. Got that? Jesus' words are amazing and will change our lives if we allow them to. They will lead us into the right paths. They will help us bear good fruit, and they will be the foundation for our lives. Jesus' words are the words of God and have the power to save us. Let's make sure we read, listen, and follow these words. Let's kneel together prayer thank you God again that you have made a difference in our lives if we have asked you um, if we have repented of our sins and we have changed thank you God that you will continue to make a difference in our lives Um, we would want to be perfect but we know we're not but you and your power and your greatness have made a difference and will make a difference Help us to seek you with our whole heart. Help us to know that we have been changed and live in the narrow way. And Give us, um, as we serve you, help our fruit to shine and make a difference in the lives of people around us too. Thank you for your word and the foundation of your word. Thank you for the church that has um, supported your word and has taught your word. And thank you that we can dig into your word in our Sunday school classes and our um, time together like this. Thank you for Jesus and what he's done on the cross and for your gift of salvation to us. Um, the precious gift that we didn't deserve, uh, we didn't work for, we couldn't work for, um, but the gift that you gave us that will give us eternal life if we claim it and we live it and if we um, let it be a, make a difference in our lives. Let's pray for our week this week. Help us to walk in your ways. Help us to walk in your trails and to live our lives the way you would want us to. In Jesus' name, amen.